Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by my Wall Street. This week we have another fantastic interview for you guys to listen into. Sean Keyes is the finance correspondent with The Currency, a renowned Irish publisher that focuses on the world of business, finance and economics. Sean himself is a specialist in equity research and writes regularly about both the Irish and international stock markets, giving us in-depth profiles of major companies and sectors. A few weeks ago, Emmett sat down with Sean to chat about the current state of the market. They covered topics like Sean's recent findings on taking opportunities when the market seems like it's at its worst, what Sean's best and worst investing mistakes have been, and if he would buy, sell or hold Bitcoin at the moment. Stock Club will return to normal service next week. We'll see you then. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sean Key's best-selling author, editor, and speaker, and above all, finance correspondent for The Currency. Welcome to Stock Club. Thank you for having me. Sean, can you start by telling me a little bit about your career to date, both academic and professional? Yes, so... I uh, did a started off. I did economics at university. Didn't know what I was going to do with it. I wasn't too stressed because I thought that if some economics is usually if people get jobs out of economics somehow. Um, but I wasn't very career focused either. D- didn't get on. Didn't go straight into an investment bank. Did my masters in economics at UCD then, and. I had this vague thought that I was, I enjoyed writing and I was quite good at it, I thought. Uh, and I had this qualification in economics and I was interested in it. So I thought, okay, I will be a financial journalist. And that was as far as my plans had gone. So, right, had to put my plan into action, went to London, got a job at uh, Money Week, which is a financial publication over there, aimed at like ordinary investors telling them like the latest ideas and the latest investment trends and things like that. Um, Money Week then had a sideline in in um, investment newsletters. So they would sort of upsell Money Week subscribers onto this in, in, like an investment strategy. So the strategy would be like, you know, invest in small caps, R&D, mining companies, commodities, whatever it might be. Each one would be distinct and it would show an ordinary person from start to finish how you invest in this theme and it would hold your hand, sort of sell the reader on the investment, do the, all the analysis and then have a portfolio of buy, sells and holds at the end of it. So a little mini miniature um, fund that was delivered by news, by, delivered by, by printed email, by, by print and, and by email. Um, so I did that for a few years. Then I made the leap into actually running one of those newsletters where I was sort of the um, regulated and responsible person for the investment advice. Um, that was really fun and that was kind of a bit unexpected. I found myself as like a sort of miniature fund manager. I had like 7,000 subscribers. The thing was focused on small caps initially and then it was like technology stocks. We pivoted into technology stocks and then later on. 
Um, but that was, yeah, that was great fun. Did that for a few years. And then uh, I'd been in London for, at that point, for kind of eight, nine years. Felt the owl, tug of the heartstrings, thought it was time to come home back to Ireland. Uh, I was working remotely from Ireland for a while and I had a chance encounter with Tom Lyons when I met him. Um, and then conversations developed and I was very pleased to start with the currency when it launched in in the September, October of 2019. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So I'm, my, my title is finance correspondent. Don't just cover finance, but I cover the more uh, sort of uh, technical side of business coverage. I do, um, you know, the financial system and, and, and macroeconomics, and I do uh, company financials and company valuations and things of that nature. And I have also have an investment email, which I think you say you've read it before. Yeah, that's right. I've been repeatedly, repeatedly impressed with your weekly email to the currency subscribers on on matters ranging from a grand theory of why crypto is going down right through to what would have to happen for Tesla to be worth $1.2 trillion, which you can imagine caught my attention. But it was one particular piece, Sean, at the start of August called Don't Let Fear Mess Up Your Returns that prompted me to ask you to join me here today. And in the piece, you said that typically people sell their stocks when things are at their scariest and tend to wait until things look a bit safer before buying back in, or people put cash into the market when it feels safe and take it out when it feels risky, which is another way of saying buying high and selling low. And then you went on to discuss an almost unheard of paper, well, to me anyway, from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, written by Friesen and Sapp in September 07. Can you discuss the findings of that paper, Sean? Yeah, so um, they were looking at professional investors, not even ordinary investors. And they were comparing the, the actual cash returns that investors generated investing in funds with the funds sort of headline returns and the difference between those two numbers being like being accounted for by when the investors were in the fund and not in the fund when they decided to pull cash in and cash in and cash out and professional investors do the same thing that ordinary people are are warned not to do which is they try to time the market they look at the the economic weather and they say aha i have in my wisdom decided that this is a bad time to be invested in these stocks let's say and i'm going to decide not to i'm going to pull my cash out and we'll get back in at a better time for us so yeah systematically they found that this is a really really bad idea uh it dragged down returns by i think i think it was like one or one and a half maybe two percent per year something like that which you know in the context of your typical returns is enormous and what when you know obviously when you start compounding it out over a long period of time it's just this huge huge dent in in your what you end up with and yeah it it was sort of striking because you know i think you 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 think of uh, market timing as this like a sin of retail investors maybe you know like that people are maybe a little bit naive and you know they they buy stocks when the lads at the barbecue are saying, "Oh, you know, the market's doing great now. It's a good time to get in. Get a good time to get in the market." And then that they also they sell stocks when 
the RT news is is all about market, you know, showing market crashes, and so that they are, you know, obviously buying at the wrong time and selling at the wrong time. So you think, yeah, I don't know. Intuitively, I thought I thought of it as a re, as a retail investment phenomenon. Sure, it is a retail investment phenomenon, but you had even these pros who all have CFAs and they've been doing it all their life and really should know better, uh, and even these guys are making the same mistake to a quite a serious extent. Yeah, so effectively market timing doesn't work in the sense that it doesn't improve performance. No, it doesn't. It doesn't improve performance because like it, it doesn't improve performance for, as I said, I said the piece, there's sort of two things that's put in there. It doesn't improve performance. It doesn't help you like get ahead of the index or the market because because the market will have already the market is forward looking and the price that's in the market now is has already incorporated all of the fear or, or all of the excitement and grief that you you might be hearing about it thinking about that's already baked in and the market price is looking at the, the at, 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 at um earnings in future so like you're just realistically not going to have an edge over the market's um, estimation of future incomes of, of the present value of future earnings, future cash flows. So like, that's why you're not going to get ahead of it. And then the reason that's even worse than that, the reason that you probably fall behind it is because even though the market goes up and down and it sort of seems sort of random, uh, the market does go up and down in a sort of random pattern, but what it also does is it kind of in the long term, it does steadily grow. It's got a kind of a gentle tailwind behind it at all times of depending on exactly where and when you're talking about, but it's, you know, in the mid, mid single digits percentages. So for any, any minute that you are or any day that you decide is not a, not a good time to be invested in the market, that's the day that you're not getting that tailwind. I love that concept. I really do love that concept. And it's kind of underpins the approach I've always taken as a stock investor. Uh, and to quote something you wrote, even if the market seems like it's crashing, you have no reliable way of knowing whether worse is ahead. And the concept, Sean, that I love that you've introduced me to is that there's this constant gentle tailwind. It's a nice way of expressing the long-term, I suppose, long-term view. So as stock investors, or at least the way I invest is going in and staying in for as very long as possible is a way of removing the variable, which is market timing. Should I get in? Should I get out? That simple question can distract an individual or a professional fund manager to the point of really eroding long-term returns. Yeah. And, and I think like that, that tailwind thing, like it, it's actually, it's actually linked to, the sort of your your stresses and your fears as an investor like the the reason the market gives you four five six seven eight percent per year is because it's so volatile and it's that that volatility like it's genuinely you know unpleasant as an investor to have to be dealing with it you know there's a psychological cost in it um, and which is obviously why people try to time the market. And then there's, and then there's also just a kind of a practical cost, which is that, you know, you can't plan your life very well because you don't know what your portfolio, your portfolio is not going to be, going to be worth next year. But like, so the, the greater the stress, the greater the volatility and the heartburn and the uncertainty, the, the, the more, the, the more, um, the greater, the stronger the tailwind and they're intrinsically related. So 
an asset that doesn't give you much heartburn and gives you more certainty, that gives you less of a tailwind. An asset that's really volatile, really scary, that gives you more of a tailwind. You said that rebalancing your portfolio periodically is a good idea. I'm not too sure, as it usually results in individuals punishing their returns by selling some of their big winners, uh, which, you know, have a tendency to continue winning. Are you aware of any studies on the effect on returns by rebalancing? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're right, Emmett, that it does lower your returns because that's almost sort of what it's meant to do. Because if you think about it, like when you, let's say you have a, let's say you start out, you're like, I want, so I, I want to take so much, only this much risk and, and no more. So I want to have half of my portfolio in, in safe stuff like bonds and half of it stocks. And what was, because talk, stocks typically tend to, tend to go up more and faster than bonds, what you'll end up with in future is in, in five years time is that your 50 50 portfolio has turned into 60 40 or 70 30 with more uh more stocks and bonds in it and yeah like rebalancing does reduce your returns because it does reduce the proportion of fast growing things in it but i guess it's you're, you're doing it for the same reason as you as you initially decided that you wanted to have 50 50 you know what so it's, it's that initial 50-50 decision is the thing that counts. You can always dial up your returns by, by you know, going to 70-30, 80-20, but you'd be taking more risk along with it. So it's sort of a question of how much risk you want, do you want to tolerate? Now, like, okay, you're talking about um, that, it, that it cuts out your winners. There's probably a, a, little, a little something to that, that, you know, um, stocks and assets, they do exhibit a kind of a momentum stuff that's been going up tends to keep going up so you know by by selling it off you're kind of lessening the momentum um the momentum effect the moment and the momentum is you know uh, is another one of these tailwinds that you get but it's the price if you want to keep the risk down you have to keep the risk down sean do you invest and if so what do you invest in i invest in dumb boring index funds mm. you know uh, like i had i've had my 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 day as a as a as a full time investor um, with with the newsletters and uh, it was good like it was actually they were actually really successful um, in their returns which I was sort of pleasantly surprised by but I think it was the time and the t- it was the time and place in the market in which I found myself you know I was I was uh, the theme was small caps and and technology. And the time when it was launched was, I think it was 2015, middle 2015. So 2015 to 2018, 2019, great time to be doing that. Uh, so I had a lot of fun, like coming up with a strategy um, or copying a strategy basically is what I did, which, but it, it seemed, you know, copying a strategy, implementing it, finding the companies, telling the story, all of that. But it's a lot of work. And also I just, I couldn't stop the nagging feeling that I was just lucky and uh, I I don't, I know I'm not going to devote the amount of time to my investments as I did before. That's a full-time job. Um, and I'm happy enough to just have my, my index funds diversified, got some factors in there, got some different exposure to different markets. And I think that's, that's, that's all I need. 
What was that quote? I think it was Napoleon or something said, I'd rather have a, a lucky commander than a brilliant one. <laughs> yes. I think um, anyway, I what has the former category? <laughs> so what has been your best investment so far and your worst investing mistake? My best investment was definitely this company called Blue Prism. I was fantastically uh, fortunate with that one. Um, it was a company, it was sort of, it happened to be in my little zone of, it was a UK, it was UK listed. And I was looking for, the strategy I was running was sort of, uh, it was small cap, small cap quality I was going for. So I wasn't paying, basic, what I basically meant in practice was that I was buying small caps and like it kind of almost ignoring price, like which is sort of counterintuitive and very few investors would admit to that. But I think that's when I, when I think about it, that's what I was doing. I was looking for, I was prioritizing companies that had the right quality characteristics that were small and, um, and I wasn't getting too upset if they were expensive and blue prism anyway, sorry. And also the, the UK mark stock market aim doesn't get, it doesn't get a lot of great companies, especially a lot of great technology companies. Um, so there's rare that you that one turns up, but anyway, one did turn up. It listed in in sometime in 2016, I think. And I heard, I sort of, I heard an interview uh, that there there was a sort of an LSE LSE had these great podcasts, these great kind of these they do these like talks at lunchtime in the LSE, and then they record them and then they broadcast them. But there was someone talking about uh, automation and robotic pro- process automate automation and as a kind of a, a great new technology and Blue Prism, this newly listed company, happened to be doing exactly that. So I was like, okay, that's very interesting. I know I've got a bit, a bit of a head start. I know a bit more about this one. I'll, I'll, I'll buy it and I'll, invest, I'll stick it in the portfolio. And oh god, I think it went. It was like at one point it was like up. Did it? Did it? Did it read? I think it went over twenty x. So that's over two thousand um, percent. But in a kind of a three year period. Um, then it fell back and it was actually acquired. It was acquired at like 15x or something like that. So I didn't get the full value out of it, or the subscribers didn't get the full value out of it. But that, that was brilliant. Um, Fab. Nice result. Yeah, that was the big one. Um, and my biggest investing mistake was, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess being honest, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't, I made the classic mistake of, not thinking as hard about my selling decisions as my buying decisions. And I was, I guess it was a sort of a feature of the newsletter that you're kind of always, you had to produce this sort of 10 page report every month on a new company. So there was a lot of work in that, finding the company, interviewing the people, um, producing the report. So you're kind of structurally, your attention was there, but then like, I wasn't really, right way to be doing it at all like i had this portfolio with 20 stocks in it so i needed to be constantly 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 repricing that um and so like as i said it was a, a bull market uh stuff was going up i was delighted to see it but there was a few of those big winners that i could have taken them taken money off the table at the top and subsequently fell back a bit i mean it worked out fine in the end on the on average and over time but um yeah definitely definitely it's harder it's just more it's just more boring to be constantly um 
constantly reassessing your old investment picks, uh, then finding mm. new ones. But it's it's the name of the game. I, 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 as, I, as I talk, I'm just remembering. I saw some paper about this. Literally five years ago, I remember reading a piece of paper about it, and it was something to the effect that like professional investors, like, are terrible at, at this. Also, they are good at picking stocks and rubbish at selling them, and, and at, the, at the right time. Um, mm. I wish I, I'll have to dig it out and, and maybe write about it in the newsletter. But yeah, that's that would be that would be my words of words of wisdom. Uh, put as much effort into your existing investments as your new ones. Yeah, I think all investing mistakes all uh, always lead to a sell decision. Like I've I have yet to interview anybody when I asked them what's your worst investing mistake where the word sell doesn't come into it or in fact it was an absolute moment where they sold. I mean I've mm. I've said it before on the podcast, but I. I rebalanced my portfolio over the years and sold what today would be worth a million dollars worth of Netflix for like 30 grand. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did probably the same in Tesla. And had I just sat still and left it forever, I certainly would have a different uh, wealth profile to the one I have today. Uh, That said, um, it informs and we move forward. And, you know, there's no mistakes, there's just lessons. So, Sean, mm. what type well, you know, of if, investments if, if, are you looking? If you, if you, um, sorry, I mean, if you if you do rebalance, it's almost it's impossible to become a millionaire from investing. You know, you have to it's either one or the other. There's no there's no way to be, to both to rebalance and to to get rich. Couldn't agree more. I I could not agree more. And with the weight of real data in my investing life, I I had uh, a data scientist intern uh, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. I gave him full untethered access to all my brokerages and every decision I made. And he analyzed, uh, I think it was 19 years of buys and sells that I made uh, in my online brokerage, my TD Ameritrade brokerage, which is my my largest one, almost my original one. And uh, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that when you buy something, you should put 99% of your effort in before a buy and then spend the last 1% of effort watching it and giving it decades to fulfill its strategic purpose. Because businesses, they hit the rocks. Macroeconomics weighs down on businesses very heavily. I mean, you know, there was, I think it was a 17 year period that you would have been down on a purchase in Apple. And mm. of course, I've cherry picked the most extreme positive example and how it worked out clearly is there for all to see. But like when I look at other businesses, really, if you're getting in, sit with it. And Warren Buffett says, don't buy a stock unless you're treating it like you would a marriage. You go in, you buy it and you sit on it for a very long term. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Moving on, Sean, uh, what type of investments are you looking at for the next few years, if any? As I've been writing in the, the email, like I come, I came into this whole world of investment in about 11 years ago, something like that. And I was like quite close to ordinary investors because I was like, they're subscribing to our, to our newsletter. So I kind of knew exactly what they were interested in and what they weren't interested in. And what they wanted to read about and and value at the time was like overwhelmingly like the answer especially among investors who took themselves seriously private investors who took who were quite serious about their, what they're what they were doing and uh over time like that just winnowed natural attrition and you know natural selection winnowed those people away the newsletters all withered away because value just didn't work for between 2009 on for, for 10 years after 2009. And the guys who stuck to it were sort of, you know, value investors are by their nature contrarian and kind of maybe their personality is a bit kind of grumpy or something. You know, they're kind of, they do things their own way. That's like, that's the personality that's, 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 that fits it. But the guys like they sort of seemed stubborn, you know, they stuck at it regardless of, in the face of the evidence, it wasn't working year after year after year after year, and they were sticking at it, and it just wasn't working. And I was then I then found myself as the investor of like a, the opposite side of the fence. So I was like t- technology stocks and growth stocks in a bull market, you know. Um, but if you yeah, it just it just in the last few years, the the gap between growth and value it just got so so extreme. Such a so historically unprecedentedly extreme that it did seem to me that it would be the right time to to make the move back, um, and it's kind of started to happen. I think I wrote about it yesterday. Like, it's it's what happens is like the the when when the academics who study the value factor, they're not what they're not looking necessarily just like you know, value stocks, like an under an undervalued utility or something like that. They're looking at the, um, the cheapest stocks minus the most expensive stocks. So they're yeah. long, cheap, long, cheap, and short expensive. And, and the difference between those two is the value factor as understood yeah. by academics. Yeah. So what's happening is like the value factor as understood by academics has dramatically turned around and it's doing brilliantly for the last, uh, it's August now, eighteen months or something like that. Or yeah. But if you just looked at like a value index, maybe or value stocks which are long only, that's been middling. It's done better than than others, but it's still not done great. But like, it's it's what's the point is that um, value has done the value factor has done well because it's all of these incredibly overpriced, expensive stocks, the likes of the Cathy Woodstocks. That's how I think of them. All the Cathy Wood stocks have yeah. just given up altogether. The value factor is short, all those crazy, crazy expensive stocks. Um, now the question is like, in that's, that's, that's a shift that started to happen. The, the dumb value, sorry, the dumb growth has, for, is definitely out of fashion. Um, the question is like, is this, is it kind of a, is it the beginning of a process 
that leads into the return of value and of like the long leg of that of that trade long value um so that's sort of that's where i'd be looking that's where i'd be positioning myself think and there's other there's other sides of it like that make that make me think value could be look could be uh could be in a well positioned apart from just the, the fact that it's beginning to happen other is value does better at, at times of, of higher interest rates because it's just because of the mechanics of it like value is more about the present moment than like the future so higher interest rates are better for that and also value is a bit better when inflation is high and inflation is obviously going going up so yeah I think, so the uh, investments you're looking at in the next few years are value stocks yeah in a nutshell and are are, are you putting the is there a fund that you're actually uh watching like is there a value fund that you are investing in because i know from what you said earlier you're more of a, a an etf or a fund person yeah like the latter uh yeah yeah i mean it's 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 kind of be tricky for our retail investors to get into because they said as i said you can value indexes or value etfs they are mostly long only yeah uh so you're not getting that full benefit like fancier funds like your AQR, aqrs do um do funds that are like more systematically exposed to the value factor which are long and short um yeah. but yeah i i think uh, it's the cut i guess it's it's the, the point is that the, the 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 easily accessible retail value funds they haven't perked up yet yes but based okay. on the kind of preview we're getting in the value factor i suspect that those guys are looking looking well positioned sean time to brush off your crystal ball and make a wild prediction on where the economy which let's say for the purpose of this conversation is the s&p 500 where will it be in six months 12 months and in three years from now i think yeah the the, the, the distinction between the s&p 500 and the economy is important here because we're definitely like the the us and the and europe are really decoupling in a way that's uh, is even more than it has in the last 10 years. Um, the US, the difference between the US and the EU, obviously, um, inflation is lower in the US, or sorry, it's, maybe it's not actually lower, but it's, it's easier to contain because the US is, is, is energy independent. And, you know, basically the Fed has all the tools it needs to get inflation in order there. And I've, I've every confidence that in the US, the Fed will do that. It's not like, it's, it's not that hard for a determined central bank to control inflation. Um, will it result, will, will it result in a hard landing? Oh, I've read a lot about this and I've listened to a lot of podcasts about this, but I genuinely don't know. Uh, it's very hard to get, to gauge that. Um, I think, yeah, I think, but I think that, uh, my basic feeling is that the SP 500 is, and that's where most of my investments are. It's, uh, it is the right place to be. Um, you've got, you've got this sort of funny situation in the, in the States with like very low unemployment, um, like reasonably high growth, but they just have this inflation problem. And I think, you know, they've got a, you've got a central bank that has in the past been determined to minimize unemployment. And it's gone much further than other than its like predecessors in minimizing unemployment under Powell. So I don't think they're not the type of central bank that's sort of like single-mindedly hawkish and myopic and determined to crush inflation at all costs. I don't think that's their that's the, the mindset of that group. Um, 
but at the same time, like I think they're they've belatedly woken up to the inflation problem and they're going to do what they take, do what it takes to to get it out of the system. So yeah, I mean, as I I always tend to put a lot of uh, emphasis on what the central bank want and what the central bank how united it is, and uh, I think this power central bank strikes me as uh, a good setup, and I think with them in, with them in charge. We're not gonna. You're not gonna go too far wrong with the S and P in the US. Mm, good. Well, I hope you're right. Um, what do you see as the biggest macro threat over the next twelve months to the economic systems that you're looking at? Oh, I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of I won't say terrifying is too strong a word, but it's like scarier than more scary than I've seen in a long time. Like the the whole energy, like the European setup is quite worrying like to have such high um is the u.s the europe europe is different from the u.s i would just i just just don't i just don't understand i just don't know how the energy and inflation thing is going to play out in europe um i also this also the ecb is a sort of a myopic central bank um much more than the u.s it is more likely to come down hard on on inflation and the and Europe's economy is weaker to the extent that you can be pretty sure that interest rate rises to control inflation in Europe are probably going to result in a recession here. So that's like, hmm. yeah, like we know they're going to have to hit the brakes so hard that it probably results in a recession. And then we've got long running energy problems like that won't be resolved probably this year. You know, they they might take several several years to fix. So you just have this like. You know, it's like an unusual situation. You know, I'm not used to it. I, I've only been I've only been around for ten or eleven years. I haven't, in in the professional sense, I've never had a situation where you've got this like genuine supply side constraint, and you've got problems that can't be solved by, um, yeah. you know, more 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 monetary expansion or whatever it is. All the monetary expansion has been used up, and uh, we're still going to have a recession and. You know, it's, we're just going to have to do the very slow, patient work of like fixing our rewiring, I suppose, our entire energy system, and that's going to be that's going to take time. I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of worried about Europe. Yeah, interesting. So, would that imply, Sean, that the dollar will U.S. dollar will remain strong, and in turn, that will continue to hurt American multinationals that report in dollars? I suppose it would. Yeah. I mean, to be honest now, I've always, I've always wondered how on earth traders trade currencies because it just seems so like big, you know, like how like, you're trying to price the productive capacity of a, whatever 20 trillion economy versus another 20 trillion economy. And there's so many moving parts. I just don't, I don't know. I don't know where they get their numbers. I don't understand how, Currency people go long and short. Yeah, uh, what they you do. mean both. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, I've yeah. looked so, at it and I have to say it's it's like black art. I really am with you. There's there. It is so difficult to actually assimilate the information you're getting and understand how it's going to influence how two exchanges, uh, our exchange rates are influenced. It's really it's very very difficult. And I have another angle, I suppose, Sean, which is all these student loan forgiveness things that are happening in the United States most recently, will they result in more money flowing into consumer spending in the coming quarters and years? So Biden has forgiven, I think it's $10,000 worth of student debt, I think is if you earn less than $150,000. 
I think up to $20,000 if you're in another bracket. I, the way I'm looking at that is that means more money will flow into uh, retail. Yeah, like you would have thought so. I mean, the textbooks would say it would. Um, like we've kind of, we've gotten away with doing stuff like that for the last 15 years because we've sort of had under, the economy has been underemployed. So there was like, you know, it was there was win-win scenarios everywhere. You know, you could... Sp- you know, the government could, could borrow money cheaply and spend it, and it would be a net win. The central bank could print money and push it out into the financial system. That would be a net win. And, you know, the government could cut taxes or forgive student debt, and that would be a net win. It would all result in more employment and, and better outcomes for everybody. But now we are in the uh, more difficult world where you actually have, like, trade-offs. And you, if you want to make the place more prosperous, there you can't just spend more money you have to do things more efficiently and get more get more with less um so that's just that's the kind of i think that'll be challenging for politicians and everybody to get their head around like you know it took politicians a long time to figure out that it was a good idea to be to print and spend and be more expansionary and if i worry it'll take them a long time to figure out that it's now a bad idea to be more expansionary they will yeah. still continue applying the types of remedies that were appropriate in 2015 and 2025. So, but I mean, as for student debt, you know, obviously that's the, the particulars of that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to be an American saddled with a whole bunch of student debt. So I'm sure they're very happy about it, but like Mac, the macro economics of it aren't great. Um, and it's the kind of thing I suspect we'll probably see more about of in different countries around the world. Okay. Let's close with a quick round of buy, sell, or hold. So all the questions I'm about to ask you relate to a five-year holding period, and you only have to say buy, sell, or hold, okay? Sure. Would you buy, sell, or hold office space in Manhattan? I would, uh, okay, without knowing, I mean, it's difficult to say this, without knowing pricing of office space in Manhattan, obviously, and, you know, yields and so on. Um, But Let's shoot from the hip and say sell because I have been looking at uh, there's like there's a guy called Nick, Nick Bloom. He's an economist. He's been collecting survey data on people's working habits, you know, working from home over the last couple of years. And uh, in the States, you find like this working from home is sort of settled in now at about two or three days a week. And it's sort of been quite quite stable at that level. Similarly, employers, the bosses, their expectations of how much people should work from home are like going up and up and up and up, and they're kind of converging with with what workers want. So it'll be hard to shift that pattern. You know, people, the longer it goes on, the more people get used to it, the more they plan their lives around working from home. Um, And it'll take, I think it'll take many years for companies to kind of work it through in terms of like figuring out how it affects their productivity, figuring out even if they wanted to get employees back, whether it's possible to get them back, to make them come back, figuring out what's the best way to rationalize their office space given the new demand, all of that. So it'll take, it'll take, it seems like it'll take many years to all play out. Um, but like yeah, in a world of 40% or 30% less people in the office each day, You'd have to imagine that a lot of office space is going to be sublet and maybe repurposed in new new ways. I mean, I'm sure like Manhattan itself will continue to be really busy and really awesome, 
but maybe just well, that the, the composition will change. Maybe there'll be fewer office workers and more other people, other interesting people. Buy, sell, or hold Bitcoin? Um, I'm not a Bitcoin guy. Um, and I've like spectacularly missed everything with Bitcoin. So, you know, take what I say with a, with a pinch of salt. But um, I do think it might actually, I'm going to say it might be a buy now because I just, you just, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of in its trough. If you, I saw, I saw a chart that Noah Smith did. It was like a log chart of Bitcoins, rises and falls. And uh, when you, when you see it expressed in a log pattern, there is a sort of a striking kind of um, clarity to it. It's like it goes, it hits, it hits its peak, has it gives back 70% of its gains, new peak, 70% of its gains, new peak, 70% of its gains. Um, and I think it might have, might have one more bubble left in it. Each sorry, another thing about Bitcoin is each subsequent bu- bubble or each subsequent peak is much. Uh, the gains are much smaller than the previous one. So the pre, like from from peak to peak, it kind of the the gains have lessened over time. So mm-hmm. if you're buying it, if you bought the last peak, you you know, if, and if it does do, do it again, and and it's and it holds this pattern, you might expect to kind of double your money. But if you do manage to get lucky and buy in the bottom and in the trough, um, and it, so if you if if now is the trough and if it does hold to its long term pattern and it does have one more bubble in it, then you do you do very well. You might make you know whatever ten times your money or something like that. So I'll, I'll speculatively call it a yes. Buy buy sell or hold the S and P five hundred. Well, I'm I'm very much long the S and P five hundred. Uh, yeah. yeah, the S and P five hundred is great. It's uh, just the best, the best thing ever for ordinary people. Everyone should have it. Buy, sell, or hold art. I sell. It's just too mm. weird. I don't trust it. All this, like all, all, all the uh, stuff we talked about about the equity risk premium and the way you, the way you make money from securities by dealing with volatility and all that. Like it doesn't. That makes sense to me. It's intuitive and and it's it is like a framework. Whereas art, I don't know, just seems like a kind of a bet on, um, it's like, is it kind of like a bet on inequality or something? It's like a bet on the amount of disposable income of the top 1%. Maybe that makes it a good bet, but I don't know. Well, it's priced inefficiently. Like it, it's a function, yeah. it's a, you're right. It's a function of a very, very limited set of buyers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, let's not go there. Look, Sean, finally, if you could only own one asset for the rest of your life, what would it be? Ah, good old S and P five hundred. Sorry, I know I'm so bored. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, yeah. There's not. There's another. Another interesting one was like, uh, in in the long run, there's a there's a paper called like, the investment returns on everything, uh, like from 1860 to the present day or something like that. And these these historian researchers managed to stitch together this data set out of like God knows where they got all their data, but it was. It had real estate and bonds and stocks and whatever else, all sorts of whatever alternatives they were. And what they, what it found was that when you, when you, when you actually managed to get the data together, that like um, real estate is actually an amazing investment because it matches the returns, the stocks, the sort of the tailwind that we're talking about, but that it's much much less volatile uh, year to year. So you know, your 
the rents the rents from a from a from a from a from a, a property are pretty stable you get that stability you can you can plan your life around it and you don't have to have that like kind of anxiety and heartburn that your house is worth half of what it was or double what it was but that in 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 the long run since 1860 the overall returns have matched that of stocks so yeah stock housing is interesting but then obviously it's got it's got it's complicated there's all these tax matters and regulatory matters and in ireland in particular it seems it's it's more challenging than than most places but it's worth it's worth it's worth digging that that paper up it's like it um yeah it's worth digging that paper up on just what it is that makes assets worth owning in the first place sean thank you very much for joining me today how can our listeners get to read your weekly newsletter okay they can the easiest way is to follow me on twitter uh my my handle thing is at keys k-e-y-e-s and right there at the top of my twitter bio is a link to sign up to the investment newsletter and you can find the currency from that too and you can take out a trial subscription if you're if that fills your boat fantastic sean thank you very much for joining me this morning uh looking forward to reading more of your newsletters in the months and years ahead thanks Emmett. enjoyed it my business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.